Welcome to the Pelvic Power Podcast. I'm your host, Penny Peterson. If you live with pelvic pain, you have landed in the exact right space you need to be in. I'm a yoga teacher that helps people get out of their head and into their body through yoga and holistic living so that they can take back their power as well as harness their own inner power to make a change in their life. Here you will learn from myself, other pelvic power experts and advocates on how you can support yourself on your journey and make the journey so much easier. Welcome. Jacqueline is back for our part two of living with lycosclerosis. As you now know, Jacqueline is the founder of the Lost Labia Chronicles, a content hub for evidence-based information and support for people that live with lycosclerosis. In case you didn't know, Jacqueline partnered with the Lycosclerosis Support Network in 2023 and now creates content for them in the form of YouTube videos and blog posts. Jacqueline is a patient representative and a patient partner on a number of Ellis projects, and the knowledge that she has is mind-blowing. In today's episode, we talk about the research for different treatments for lycosclerosis, refractory LS, three questions to ask yourself if your treatment isn't working, what the listeners can do to change the future for lycosclerosis, and so much more. I am so excited to be bringing you part two of our conversation. Enjoy. You said that when you saw your doctor, you got your clobetasol straight away. And then Mm -hmm. you didn't see your gynecologist until nine months after. So we're going to talk a little bit about treatment. Did you use that clobetasol every single day for those nine months? Or did you learn something? Oh, I sure did. I sure did. Yeah. And in fact, I used it um, a lot in the first two months or the first month. So my instructions were use daily. They didn't tell me how much. They didn't tell me anything. Use daily. And I always say, I use my chapstick daily. Do you want to know how many times I put my chapstick on? Probably 10 to 20 times a day. So I was like, daily is subjective. What does this mean? Like, it didn't say once per day. It didn't say once a day. It's a daily. So I'm like, I guess I can use it as much as I want for symptoms every day. So yeah. in the beginning, and I would like squeeze it out of the tube, like, you know, the standard pea size or fingertip unit. Nah, I was like, <laughs> squeeze it out of the tube, lather it on, lather it on the vulva, like just go into town. And I had no idea that that is not what you were supposed to be doing. But I was also really desperate because by the time that I was diagnosed, I was so itchy and so in pain and I just wanted it to stop. So I was desperately slathering it on. I had a follow-up with that GP a couple months later And I told her I was doing this and she was like, oh, no, 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 no. She's like, I'm so sorry. No, I mean like one time a day. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. So then I did it one time a day, every day until I saw my gynecologist, which happened to be nine months. Mm -hmm. So again, that's not usually the standard kind of dosing, but I didn't know that at the time. So I just did what I was told. Don't, don't, I don't recommend that for other people, by the way. So. we're gonna get to that as well so what did your gynecologist said when you saw your gynecologist Um, did they agree too that it was like a sclerosis yeah he said it was definitely lichen sclerosis so he said that the skin was looking pretty good but that I did not need to be doing it every single day and he wanted to immediately drop me down to two times a week and I smiled and I said okay and I left and I said, absolutely not. Um, now, here's the thing. I am not a defiant person. 
Um, and I wasn't like deliberately trying to ignore him, but I made the decision to taper myself down in my own way for my mental health, because for my mental health, using the steroid every single day for nine whole months to go from that to just skipping to two times a, a, a week, I was terrified of like a rebound effect. I was terrified of a flare and I just knew I'd be too afraid and that my mind would kind of take over. Mm -hmm. So instead I did like kind of a slower tapering. So I went from every day to every other day and then every other day to like once every three days, I basically did a really slow tapering down over the course of maybe like a month or so until I got to two times a week. And I've actually been on two times a week ever since because at my follow-up, he said that the skin was in remission. So uh, I've been on two times a week ever since. Okay. Um, did you, so you noticed that using it every single day for nine months that actually helped with your pain? I know that a lot of people, when they use it too much, it can make the pain worse, but for you, it actually helped you. You noticed that? Yeah. So that that's interesting. Um, I'm honestly sometimes very surprised that my body tolerated such ultra potent steroids mm -hmm. at such a high dose for a long time, because you're, you're right. Often when you overuse steroids, the opposite, you know, effect can right. happen where you start getting a lot of redness, a lot of irritation, it starts feeling raw, you might develop chronic yeast. Um, and I, I had none of that, thankfully, I don't know why. Um, but luckily, that did not happen to me. But that's often why I say like, I don't recommend it unless your doctor says to. Um, that's a different case. But I usually don't recommend doing like every day for an extended period of time, because you can start getting those unpleasant side effects. I never had that. Mm -hmm. What I will say, though, is that the way that my lichen sclerosis improved and the way that it progressed was nothing like I thought it was going to be. So when I got that tube of clobetazole in my hand, when I picked it up at the pharmacy, I thought this is going to work in the same way that penicillin works for strep throat. I thought I mean fair right yeah. and so like I thought like all right by like day three I'll feel pretty good by like the end of the week it's like nothing ever happened right like again that's kind of the course that penicillin kind of takes um that couldn't have been any further from the truth with my experience um it actually got worse at first um or at least that's how I felt um I felt more pain. I felt more itch. Um, and for the first month, I really didn't think it was getting better, which is why I kept putting on more and more and more. So like I felt worse, I would put more, I felt worse, I'd put more. And maybe that was actually what was making it feel worse in hindsight, but there's no real way to, to know that for a fact. But um, I think then it was just a really slow journey for me. So for me, it was around month three when I started to feel a little bit better. Month six was when I felt significantly better not all the way but significantly better and then it was around like month nine where I had like no more symptoms and then like at 12 months is when he said I was in remission basically so that was what my trajectory looked like but it's not nearly as clean or pretty as I just painted out like in everything there was like ups and downs like there was definitely moments where I'm like wow I'm getting better I might actually be able to go to the gym again never mind I'm never doing anything again I'm in so much pain oh there we go this is tolerable oh no now we're back again like it was definitely bumpy but overall the trend was that I was getting better mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah 
Well, that's so nice. Okay. I know. <laughs> that's so nice. As we are on the topic about treatment. So, Flobetasol, that's like, is that known as like the gold standard treatment? It is. Yes. yes. Um, and the reason for that is it has the most research behind it. Mm-hmm. Like, significant research behind it and we have very good quality studies as well um and also of all the other kind of treatments that that have been looked at so far clobetazole is unmatched in its ability to reduce inflammation and that's what we're looking at because coming to the beginning of this conversation i mentioned that all of our signs all of our symptoms everything is being driven by high levels of inflammation so in order to control, you know, the lichen sclerosis, get it to get symptoms manageable, get patients into remission, et cetera, you need that inflammation to go down. And of all the things that we look at, clobetasol just keeps coming out as number one in its ability to do that. So for that reason, it tends to be the main kind of go-to that doctors will start with. They'll start almost everybody off with clobetasol. There might be some rare cases where they don't, but in general, it's clobetazole first, and then it's a question of let's watch and see how the patient responds to the clobetazole treatment, um, and then adjustments may need to be made, but it is definitely the gold standard when it comes to treatment. Okay. What are some other treatments that they would do? So some other treatments, um, kind of the second line is something called calcineurin inhibitors, Mm-hmm. So that's a lovely mouthful. Um, yeah. Calcin who? <laughs> calcineurin inhibitors. Um, so calcineurin inhibitors are another topical treatment. Topical meaning, you know, you're applying it to the skin. It's not an oral pill. It's not a systemic treatment. It's a cream or an ointment or something that you're putting on the skin. It works very similar to steroids in that it suppresses the immune system locally what I mean by that is that it's suppressing the immune kind of response in the vulva. So if you took a pill that was, you know, like a steroid pill that could suppress the immune system throughout the body, the effects are systemic, but here it's just at the vulvar level. So they work in the same way as steroids, but they are not steroids. So for people who cannot tolerate steroids, or for people that just do not want to be on steroids, this is normally the second kind of option that they go to. The main brands they're going to prescribe are tacrolimus and pimacrolimus. The one thing that you want to note with these is that the reason that they get prescribed as a second line is that they tend to sometimes cause burning when you apply the medication. And that dissuades a lot of patients from using it because if it's burning, why do you want to put it on you kind of thing, right? And and it makes sense. Now, I will say that whenever I talk to somebody that is on a calcineurin inhibitor, my first go-to is like, I always want to know, does it burn? Mm -hmm. Does it burn? And anecdotally, like when I talk to people, it's 50-50. There are people that say it didn't burn them at all. They have no issues with it. It works wonderfully. Then there's another group that said, It burned for like the first week, but then my body kind of like adapted and the burning stopped. Um, And then there's another group that say, yep, it burns all the time, but the burning only lasts for like two minutes and then it kind of fades. So sometimes we'll tell people if you have tacrolimus or primacrolimus and you experience burning to kind of put the cream or the ointment in the fridge uh, to kind of keep it cool. So it kind of like 
counteracts yeah. some of that like burning it's nice sensation too. It is. It definitely is. I mean, like ice for me has always been one of my best mm-hmm. friends with lichen sclerosis, like the, you know, for, for pain and for itch, I mm-hmm. find like they are both phenomenal. So those are like the two treatments that are like accepted as an actual treatment. And then there are other things that are still like categorized as experimental. These would be things like platelet rich plasma, uh, different types of laser and phototherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, experimental in that we just need more research on them, but the preliminary research seems to suggest that while they can improve symptoms, they don't actually um, decrease the inflammation. And that's why a lot of doctors don't feel comfortable recommending it as a treatment. They might say it can be an adjunct. So let's say you use steroids and you feel 80% better, but there's like 20%, you're just like, ugh. I still feel like, you know, some pain or some itch, then they might say, in addition to your steroids, you can try some rounds of CO2 laser, for example, mm-hmm. to try and get rid of that last 20% to really get you to 100. But they will never say use it as a treatment or stop your steroids, right? The steroids are always still there. This is just like an extra thing to get you kind of all the way there. Mm, I love that. That's so yeah. nice. So what do you suggest if someone goes and see their doctor? We're going to take me, for example. I'm the <laughs> example here today. I have had lichen sclerosis. I was diagnosed when I was 18. I'm now 33. And I struggle so bad with tearing. And mm-hmm. I am very, you know that I'm very into the lichen sclerosis support network. I read your blogs. I watch yep. your YouTubes. But what the fuck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, mm-hmm. I hear people are in remission. And I know that remission means different from different for different people, but what do you recommend for someone that is really, really struggling? And like, my thing is tearing, for example. So for someone that's struggling with that, what do you recommend? Mm -hmm. So I really love that you asked me this question. Um, And why I love it is that there are a lot of people that respond very well to steroids Mm -hmm. and that get into remission very quickly um, and never need to think about any other form of treatment. That said, there are quite a lot of people that do not experience the same thing. They use steroids and they are either not getting better or they're getting worse. And it's frustrating because if they are supposed to be the gold standard, if they are supposed to be the best option and they're not working for you, that's scary. Mm -hmm. That's scary and that's frustrating. If you were trying the like fifth best option and that didn't work, well, then you say, that's okay. I still have option four, three, two, and one. Mm -hmm. But when one isn't working, it's like, what do I do? So there's something called refractory or recalcitrant lichen sclerosis. Now they both mean the same thing. It just kind of depends on where you're living in the world. I've seen both being used. I'll I'll probably just say refractory, but I might also mix the two up. Um, so refractory lichen sclerosis is lichen sclerosis that does not get better with gold standard treatment like lichen sclerosis. So if you've been diagnosed with lichen sclerosis and you've been treating with ultra potent topical steroids for more than 12 months and you're not improving or you're getting worse, you may have what's called refractory lichen sclerosis. Now, Before you decide, well, not you, I mean, I guess it's your doctor that decides if it's refractory or not, but before 
we know if it's truly refractory, there are three main questions you have to ask first. So the first one is, is the diagnosis correct? Now, if you have biopsy confirmed lichen sclerosis, this doesn't really apply to you and you skip to the next question. But if you were diagnosed clinically, so no biopsy, just a visual looking for the signs and listening of the symptoms, if you were diagnosed clinically, and especially if you were diagnosed by somebody that wasn't a board certified specialist that doesn't kind of see vulvar dermatoses often, you may want to consider getting a second opinion with a specialist. And here's the thing. So we hear a lot in the lichen sclerosis world that lichen sclerosis is grossly underdiagnosed and often misdiagnosed. The biggest misdiagnosis often is yeast, right? Almost everybody, when they share their lichen sclerosis story, there's a part that we get to where it's like, it's yeast, it's yeast, it's yeast. So a lot of people are now being diagnosed with lichen sclerosis only to find out later that it's not. So I actually know of a handful of women who got clinical diagnosis as lichen sclerosis. They started topical corticosteroids and they got worse. Like, and things didn't settle down and they were losing their mind. Like, what the F is wrong with me? I'm doing all the right things. I'm using the best treatment and I am not improving. A couple of these happened to take all their pennies and dimes out of the bank, got on a plane and flew to see a specialist only to find out that, nope, they were misdiagnosed. They do not have lichen sclerosis. What they had was an embedded yeast infection, which is... um a different type of yeast infection. It is brutally painful, but it can be cured. Mm -hmm. So these people, and again, and this is why it's important to get properly diagnosed because you wouldn't take valciclovir for lichen sclerosis. Valciclovir is prescribed for herpes. It's an antiviral, but lichen sclerosis is an autoimmune condition. So it's not going to respond to an antiviral or an antibacterial or anything like that. So Getting the right diagnosis is very important. So that's the first piece. Again, if you're biopsy confirmed, skip to the next question. But if you were clinically diagnosed and you're not responding, you're getting worse, I would seek out, you know, a separate, a second opinion from a specialist to see, is there a misdiagnosis going on here? Now, let's move on to the second question, which is, okay, are you treating the right way? Are you treating optimally? Are you on the right treatment? And are you doing it well? So this is a bit of a tough question, because there's no universally agreed upon protocol. However, most of the medical community seems to agree that treatment should be ultrapotent topical steroids, and you go more aggressive in the beginning, and then you slowly taper the patient down to a maintenance protocol which can vary depending on your countries, but it's usually anywhere from one to three times a week. In North America, the maintenance is typically, you're going to typically be told twice a week. But again, Europe, Australia, this can vary a little bit. Now, according to the Center for Vulval Vaginal Disorders, the optimal way to apply your steroids is to soak first. So soak in a tub, or if you have a sitz bath, fill that up with water, sit in the on your little sits bath thing on the toilet, and you sit there and soak for 15 to 20 minutes. Once you're done, you'll get out of the bath, take your towel, gently pat dry, 
And then you'll take a pea-sized amount of your ointment. Now the CVVD does recommend an ointment over the cream. There's a bunch of reasons, but the two main ones are that the ointment um, permeates better. So the medication gets delivered in a more optimal way. And secondly, because the cream bases contain alcohol, which can be very irritating to the skin and it can burn and sting if you have any open wounds or sores. So that's why. So they say pea-sized amount of the ointment and then you rub that on the vulva for approximately 60 to 90 seconds. Now, if you want more in-depth detail on that protocol, Kathy does have an interview with Dr. Jill Kraft where she goes through this protocol that she helped create. So you can definitely go check that out on Lichen Sclerosis Podcast. Yeah. Um, but that is kind of the, the gist of how they recommend using your steroid. And the reason is that it comes back to that layer of thickened skin. So the reason you're soaking is that you want that skin to become more soft. It's going to have a harder time because we want to get that medication all the way down to that basement layer. Mm -hmm. Now, if we've got this thick barrier up top, it's making it harder to get that medication all the way there. So we're soaking to soften it so that it has an easier time getting all the way down. And the reason that we're rubbing it in is kind of twofold. So one is to avoid the product transferring elsewhere to the body. So often you'll hear people using clebatasol and they start saying, I have LS in my groin. My groin is all red and raw and irritated. When it's actually not LS, it's usually a reaction to the clebatasol getting onto the groin. Because if you just kind of slather it on and don't really take the time to rub it in, it's more prone to kind of transferring and falling down onto the thighs and the groin. So that's one of the reasons you rub it in. The other is, again, to really ensure that it's getting all the way down to where we want it to go. So the second question to ask when you're, you know, potentially have refractory lichen sclerosis and you're not responding is, am I applying it in the optimal way? Another question is, am I applying the right amount am I, and am I applying it to the right area? This one's a little hard to answer. So for this one, I recommend having a discussion with your doctor. Mm -hmm. I always tell people, just go on Google, find an image of vulvar anatomy, just Google like vulva anatomy, print out a diagram, take some, take some highlighters, okay? Bring that with you and then go to their office and say, show me, take the yellow highlighter, show me where I need to be putting my clebatasol. Draw That's it on the diagram so that I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I also say, ask them how much you should be using because the general recommendations kind of vary. You'll hear anything from a pea-sized amount to like half a fingertip unit, which is where the first like finger knuckle is. Mm -hmm. um, but this depends, right? Because you might need more product if you have perianal and vulvar involvement. We all have different surface levels. So some of us may need more and may need less. So I always say confirm, know exactly how much and know exactly where they want you to put it. So, okay, let's assume the diagnosis is correct. You're applying it in the right way, the right amount to the right areas. The last question to address is, do you have a secondary condition? Now, this is something that I am super passionate about. And I talk about all the time on the, um, the Lost Labia Chronicles and in our support groups. And I always tell people, just because you have LS, does not mean that you are immune to other genital pelvic conditions. Mm -hmm. What happens is that oftentimes when we have LS and we get that diagnosis, any other symptom that we experience, we always say it's LS. 
-hmm. If we start experiencing itch again, we're like, oh, I'm in an LS flare. We don't even think maybe it's yeast, maybe it's this. But the truth is you can have LS and you can also have dermatitis, both contact or allergic. You can have BV, you can have yeast, you can have vestibulodynia, you can have you vulvodynia. Can have HPV. You can have HPV, you can have overactive pelvic floor. Like there's so many things. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a really, really important question and one that should not be overlooked when you're trying to work through the potentially recalcitrant um, lichen sclerosis. So what this involves now is you need a specialist. You do need a specialist that really knows vulvovaginal genitopelvic conditions because the problem, as I mentioned earlier, is a lot of these conditions have overlapping symptoms. They all cause pain. They all cause itch. They all cause discomfort. So it can be hard to kind of disentangle those symptoms and to know what really belongs to which condition. Mm -hmm. So it does take a specialist, but you would want them to rule out any other secondary condition. So this might involve a lot of questions. This might involve some testing. For example, if they think you have vestibulodynia, they'll take like a Q-tip and they'll just kind of gently, like very gently touch around the vestibule area. If they think it's yeast, they might do a swab. If they think, you know, it's BV, they might do the famous sniff test or like whiff test, which... Yeah, so that that was the thing. It sure is. Um, So one of the ways you diagnosed um, that you can diagnose BV is actually just by smelling. So they will actually smell because it has a very strong, distinct odor. So that's one way. So you know, when we're trying to diagnose secondary conditions, it can involve different types of testing. So then, if there is a secondary condition, this is really important because of all the things that I listed, none of those will respond to steroids. Absolutely none. So if all you're doing is putting steroids on your vulva and there's a secondary condition, it's not going to address that. These conditions need other treatments. So that's why it's really important first to see if there's any other secondary condition going on. If there is, then we have to treat that separate from the lichen sclerosis. Now, let's say, okay, diagnosis is correct. You're doing it right. You're applying it correctly. All secondary conditions have been ruled out. Then we would say that, yes, you probably have recalcitrant lichen sclerosis. So when you're at that point, there's three main things that they're going to do. So the first one is they might, and they they usually go from like more, um, like less invasive, like the easier stuff to the more complicated stuff. So the first thing they'll try is they'll try switching you off of a steroid onto calcineurin inhibitors. Mm -hmm. So again, this is things like, Pimacrolimus, tacrolimus, they'll normally start you on something low. So you're looking at like tacrolimus being 0.03% and then moving you up to 0.1% if you can tolerate it. So sometimes for people that switch helps, not always. Now, if the calcineurin inhibitors do not work, the next thing that they often do is they will do corticosteroid injections. So they're actually going to inject steroids directly into the lesions. So this has a big, big, big impact. So often what we see with like recalcitrant, like in sclerosis that doesn't respond to steroids is it needs a way more aggressive approach up front. So injecting directly into those lesions can start to help things heal up a bit. And then once those injections kind of resolve things, then the patient goes back on, you know, topical corticosteroids 
And usually that does the trick. Now, how many injections you need is really going to depend on how many lesions, what you're seeing. You might have to go in for multiple rounds, um, you know, to get things to resolve. That's really a case by case basis. Now, the last one that I want to mention is a little bit more mm, experimental. Um, and I'm going to pull research from Dr. Lee, Lim, and Fisher. So this comes from a 2015 paper that is specifically looking at cases of a recalcitrant lichen sclerosis. Now this paper includes five patients who were just not responding at all to the steroids. They had pain with sex, they had itch, and they just, you know, the skin was very, very active with lichen sclerosis, very thickened skin and steroids just were not doing the trick. So of those five people, three of them, no, four of them had symptoms, usually itch and pain. One person had no symptoms. Because remember, the thing with lichen sclerosis is you can actually be asymptomatic, which means you can have a lot of clinical signs, but you might not have any itch, any pain, any issues. So one of those person did not have any symptoms, but they just had the really thickened skin, very active signs of clinical um, lichen sclerosis. Now, what they did for these patients was they used CO2 ablative lasers and they used those lasers. They did multiple rounds, I think in between five to nine per patient, like sessions. And they used this, um, to see if this could help with the kind of, you know, stubborn recalcitrant lichen sclerosis. So for folks that are kind of like not super familiar with lasers, first of all, I do have a free lichen sclerosis ebook where I review, um, all the different types of lasers and what the science says about all those different types, because there's ablative and non-ablative lasers and different brands and so on and so forth. You can get that by going to loslabia.com forward slash LS ebook. I will also um, link that in the show notes because that's a really great, really great ebook. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's over 60 pages of evidence-based information and support resources, and it's 100% free, and it always will be because I think that everyone should get like the main kind of information out there. So yeah, I do review different laser types, but just really quickly here, CO2 ablative lasers work by removing the outer layer, like the top layer of skin using heat and kind of energy modalities. Um, so it removes that top layer. And what that does is, or what it allegedly does, I guess I should say, is that it kind of helps trigger the, the body's natural healing process by promoting collagen and elastin, which is thought to help repair and regenerate the skin tissue. So it is a little bit painful, but just by the way, they usually will numb this area first before they go in with the laser. Um, so they performed this for multiple sessions. In between the sessions, the, um, the participants were using topical corticosteroids. And when they were looking at the results at the end, out of those five people, three of the people had complete resolution of symptoms, like no more symptoms whatsoever. One had no change, but that one person that had no change was the person that had no symptoms. So that's kind of not necessarily a bad thing. So really just one out of the five person only saw partial resolution. So they didn't completely get rid of their symptoms, but they saw a nice big improvement. So I guess my takeaway from this paper is that maybe there is a place 
for CO2 fractional laser in people that are not responding to traditional kind of, you know, topical steroids. With respect to CO2 laser, I do want to mention there was a study done by the Center for Vulvovaginal Disorders. Um, and this was like a top notch quality study. It was a randomized control study. There was sham controls, all participants, clinicians, everybody was blinded, like top notch study. And they wanted to see if CO2 laser was an effective treatment for lichen sclerosis. What they used to measure whether or not it was an effective treatment was pre and post biopsies. So they took a biopsy at the beginning, noted the level of inflammation, treated the participants with CO2 laser. And then after their laser, they did another biopsy to see if that inflammation from the initial biopsy went down. So they're looking for a statistical they have a statistical threshold determined before that they need to see to ensure that it is actually reducing the inflammation. What they found was no statistical improvement in the inflammation, and therefore they cannot recommend it as a primary treatment. That said, almost every participant said they felt so much better. Their symptoms felt so much better. Their skin looked better but it just wasn't addressing the inflammation. So again, and this is my takeaway, right? Like whenever I talk about science, I'm always very clear, like you interpret science, you interpret data. My interpretation might be different than yours. So just to be clear, like this is my takeaway from that is that, okay, so maybe it's not offered as a primary treatment, but maybe it does has its place as an adjunct um, for folks that either can't get all the way there with steroids or for folks with recalcitrant, um, lichen sclerosis. I would love to see if this study could be replicated with a bigger uh, participant pool because five people is a very small participant pool. But I would love to see if they could do some more work with, you know, recalcitrant cases and seeing if this actually does have its place because all of the participants, all these five people ended up in remission and then they were able to maintain remission just with topical steroids. So it's almost like, like with the injections, it's like we're going out with the big guns to really get those stubborn areas to like wake up and calm down. And then once they're settled, then we can go back to clobetazole and kind of just ideally maintain and stay in remission using that. Um, so those are the main things that you do for cases that are truly not respondent and that are not due to any other conditions. Um, one thing I will say about recurrent tearing is not so much in Canada, but in the States, they do have a surgery for people that experience recurrent tearing. Um, so they'll actually kind of surgically remove those scar tissued areas uh, that tend to tear and tear and tear. Um, so they can do that in the States, the Center for Vulvovaginal Disorders does, and then a few other doctors throughout the, the, the United States can do that. So for recurrent tearing, there's also that surgery. So again, there's a lot in this, a lot to kind of think about. And, you know, you should always uh, make this decision in conjunction with, you know, your healthcare provider, right? Like talk through, know what the pros and cons are, like CO2 fractional laser, I will say, um, there's no adverse side effects. Most people just say they're sore for a couple of weeks after. Um, most of them in the study were managed by, well, they call it paracetamol because the study is Australian, but so Tylenol up yeah. here, essentially. Um, oh, you lived in Australia, didn't yeah, you? Did. <laughs> yeah, okay. We have that in Sweden too. Paracetamol. Okay, there you go. Yeah. So 
So like, yeah, there can be some discomfort after. And I think it's important that, you know, people know this so that they come in prepared and they can make that decision. Um, but, you know, I, I thought I would mention this study because I do think it's interesting. And, you know, we have to acknowledge and be mindful that not everybody does respond to um, topical corticosteroids. And we need to be advocating for these people mm -hmm. and we need to be looking at different treatment options. And we also sometimes have to think outside of the box. Like medicine is not always a science. Sometimes it's an art. And I think that truly good doctors are the ones that really listen to their patients and then get creative um, and work with them to find a solution that works for them and their bodies. Because everybody's lichen sclerosis is so unique, like so unique. Like some people have no symptoms. Some people have itch and no pain. Some people only tear during sex. Some people have no anatomical changes whatsoever. Like it's so, it's so varied. And I think that we need to be mindful of that when we, you know, are thinking about treatments. Okay. Well, that's great, Jacqueline. Thank you so much. And that brings me on to the next topic, actually. What can the listeners do to change the future for people with lichensclerosis? So what can we do to support the next generation, to support ourselves for the future? Oh my gosh, I love this question. I've never been asked this question on a podcast before and I love that you asked it <laughs> um, because it's such an important question because I think often when we think about change in lichensclerosis, we often think just at the level of doctors. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, doctors have that big responsibility. And the way that I see it is that we all have a role to play. So patients have a role to play. Healthcare providers have a role to play. And when I say healthcare providers, I don't just mean gynecologists and dermatologists. I mean, pelvic floor PTs. I mean, acupuncturists. I mean, any kind of healthcare provider, nurse practitioners, et cetera. And then there's also government and policy and the ones that do the funding, right? So there's so many different layers. And I think there's a place for everybody. When we think about enacting change and seeing change, we need all these levels kind of cooperating and working together. And at first, I think it's more of the patient doctors that are going to work together because, you know, the government levels, the funding levels, they're a little bit more difficult to kind of drag in. But let's talk about what patients can do, because I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of patients that are that are listening mm -hmm. and we can do so much more than we realize. Um, and I just want to preface this by saying that. You do what you feel comfortable with. If I suggest something and you're like, it gives you heart palpitations and you're like, I do not feel safe doing that. I do not feel comfortable doing that. I don't want you to feel an ounce of guilt. I do not want you to feel bad. I want you to honor that feeling and say, this is not how I'm going to do my change work or my advocacy work. This is not, I'm not at that place yet. I might not ever be, I might be later, but I just want you to honor that and don't feel like you have to end this podcast and then go out in the street with billboards of vulvas educating, you know, the construction workers down the street on where the clitoris <laughs> is, but you can do that if you want. Um, <laughs> I love it. Or put vulvas up on your wall and then people come here and they're like, why do you have a vagina on your wall? It's a that's <laughs> There you go. There you go. You're like, it's a teaching moment, yeah. right? Um, yeah. So yeah. So some things we can do is, well, we can learn about our vulvar anatomy and we can use the proper turns and we can educate our families, our friends about this. Mm -hmm. So if you have little children, 
teaching them at a young age. No, that's not your vagina, honey. That's your vulva. Nope, that's your labia. That's this, you know, teach them so that they can be empowered to advocate for themselves in the future. Because going back to my diagnosis story, I often look back and wonder, could I have been diagnosed sooner if I didn't say my vagina hurt? Like, if I used the word vulva, would that maybe have clued them in, you know, a little bit? And I'll never know that answer. And that's okay. But I think like a big piece of it is educating yourself and educating others. And again, you do this in a way that feels good and safe for you. You know, um, maybe you don't tell everyone, maybe it's just your family, maybe it's only your friends, um, but educate when you can, depending on your comfort level, put a bulb on their wall, on your walls, like Penny and educate people, you know, when they come over, I yeah. love doing that, but you know, Penny and I happen to be more open, um, and that's okay. You don't have to be. Another thing is um, you can try to get into clinical trials. Um, We want more research, but research doesn't happen without patients. Mm -hmm. If there are no patients that will sign up for these studies, they will not get done. Mm -hmm. We can't do, we, that, you know, we, not me, but like researchers can't do these studies if nobody is signing up. So you can go to like clinicaltrials.gov or you can yeah, go to you your local share really great studies as well that are going on. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's the other thing, too. You can always sign up for my newsletter, um, lostlabia.com slash subscribe, because whenever there's a new that's trial. Too. Yeah. When there's a new trial that opens up, I usually let people know, hey, there's this new trial. If you live in this area, consider it. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, clinical trials change the future. There's a couple really exciting clinical trials that are going on right now that again, have the potential to really shake up how we think about and treat lichen sclerosis. If these treatments show to be successful, it is like really, really exciting, right? So you can kind of be at the front line of that change by participating in these trials. So, you know, yeah, get on my newsletter to see when new trials come out or go to clinical trials.gov. You can go to your hospital and try and see if they have any open trials, search, talk to your doctors, ask, Mm -hmm. do you know any trials, especially if you have a doctor that works in a hospital, they'll definitely be more knowledgeable about trials. That's what I said to my doctor. I was like, if you're ever doing trials, like here I am. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm like, there's so many trials where I'm like, come to Toronto. Yeah, I know. Like, (laughs) please come here. Yeah. That's so funny. There are people, we volunteer. Yeah. I love what you're saying about the anatomy because my best friend, she has, so my god kids, uh, her kids are my god kids. So they're, they're twins, two girls. And I remember her bathing them when they were babies and she would always mm-hmm. sing this song she's like that's your little belly and that's your little vulva and she was like always talking like that and she was like saying the proper terms belly might not be the proper term but you know what I mean just like sure, inviting yeah. in vulva into the language I was like I think that's really cool I do too. I love that. My heart always melts when I hear stories like this. And when I hear little kids using the word properly, I'm like, oh, yeah, no. It's almost like they're healing like my inner child (laughs) by using, you know, the proper language. It's just such a like, oh, moment. So yeah, anatomy, educating other people about it, um, getting involved in clinical trials, getting involved in research. 
Clinical trials isn't the only way, by the way, that you can get involved in research. Um, for example, I'm giving like a talk uh, in a few weeks, actually, at Volvo Vaginal Conference. Um, and that talk is on the lived experiences of people with lichen sclerosis, looking at secondary consequences. And I put out a survey to actively ask you to share your thoughts and your opinions and, you know, take these surveys. And now I am going to be delivering the results of that survey to a room full of doctors, GPs, nurses, dermatologists. And this is a way. So like, you know, if you're like, Oof, I don't feel like doing a clinical trial. I'm not sure how I feel about, you know, getting PRP injections, but I'll fill out the survey. Yeah, I could fill out a survey. So there's other ways that you can kind of lend your voice to research. And I think that's really important because doctors need to hear from patients. Yeah. They need to hear our voices too. Yeah. Like our voices matter and our voices are not one big blob, right? We all represent something different and we want to highlight that and center that. So I think that's another way that you can kind of get involved in that respect. Yeah, um, that almost made me cry. Just like, you're like, oh, we can bring your voice forth. I was like, yes, we need this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I don't want to just sit there and talk about my experience. Like as a patient representative, I want to highlight your voices. I want to highlight your experiences, your frustrations. I want them to know those. I want them to know that. I want them to know how much this impacts your quality of life mm -hmm. because we often don't get to explain all of this to them. So just to have this opportunity, I think is really, really important. And I hope to continue doing this. So yeah, taking those surveys when they come out can be a really big thing. Um, another thing is, you know, talk to your doctors, let them know about me, let them know about Lichen Sclerosis Support Network. Um, you know, share my ebook with them. It's free. They can hand that out to all their new patients. Like Sclerosis Support Network is working on pamphlets. Mm -hmm. um, so once those are, so yeah, good. they yeah. do. We're just working on like some supplier stuff in the back end. But once those are ready, you know, it's like get those, distribute them, put them in your pharmacies, put them, you know, at, at the doctor's office. Tell them. I, I've had so many people, I do one-on-one -on -one support calls and I have so many people tell me like, I printed out your book and I gave it to my doctor and now she prints it out and gives it to all her patients. Or like I told her about your YouTube channel and now like she sends everybody there and it's just like spread the word too. That's another way you can help the future. Because if you think about it, when you first get a diagnosis, you get told almost nothing. You get told it's autoimmune. It's a skin thing. Here's your treatment. They don't talk to you about sexual health. They don't talk to you about mental health. They don't give you any support resources, any peer support resources. They leave you with nothing. So imagine instead getting that diagnosis, then getting a pamphlet, then getting a resource, getting support resources, and having that almost right off the bat, having somebody to speak to right off the bat, having a, like all these things right off the bat that can really help with people's mental health. Some people go years with so many questions and they get nothing. Mm -hmm. So if we can start to like make that gap a lot smaller and get people the information and support and education that they need right away, that's another, you know, huge way that you can help. You can also share your story, mm -hmm. um, you know, share your story online. You never know how that's going to help people. I remember when I first came out about my lichen sclerosis, my inbox was flooded I had so many friends, people I hadn't spoken to in like 15 years that were like, oh my God, me too. I have like in sclerosis. Like, what is this? I'm um, so wild. Or like, I had people saying like, I just want to thank you. Like, 
I don't have lichen sclerosis, but I have vulvodynia or I need to use dilators. And I felt so ashamed and embarrassed that I have to use dilators at 25. But here you are talking about this. This has kind of normalized things for me a bit and made me feel like better about myself. So it's like, you never know who you can help when you share your stories. Um, I have something called the grief project, which is kind of constantly open for submissions where people share their stories of grief and lichen sclerosis. And I know that that can be really cathartic for some people to kind of get that out. And when you share your story and other people read it, sometimes that can be really healing for other people too. Mm -hmm. So you're changing other people's lives without knowing it. And one thing I do with the, the grief project is I tell people, you can submit anonymously. Mm -hmm. So you can share your story and have the impact, but still keep your privacy if that's important to you. Because I think it's really important, you know, that we are always respecting you know, people's privacy. So you can always share your story in ways that are not, you know, actively, you know, like Penny and I, like putting our names and our faces and our houses and there. everything yeah. kind of, you know, it's like, it's all out there. You don't have to go to that extreme to make a difference in people's lives. So sharing things, talking about it. I think these are some, you know, really good ways. And then if you want to get more like into the government side of things, just start annoying your MPs. Yeah write that to them like a great plan call them <laughs> just annoy the daylights out of them make it your mo to like drive them bananas so that they start doing something yeah. tell them about lichen sclerosis tell them you know it increases your risk of vulvar cancer we need more funding you know like start getting on them for funding and all these things so i think these are great places to kind of start you know yeah. changing things for the next generation yeah no i love that thank you jacqueline Okay, before we wrap up here, I have a couple more questions, short ones. So what are you working on in your personal life right now when it comes to yourself? What are you working on? Like lichen sclerosis related or not lichen sclerosis No, it related? can be anything. It could also, yeah, it can be anything that you're working on right now to like become, you know, to feel better in life, to just be your best self, to feel like, yeah, you're moving towards the place where you want to be. Mm, okay. Um, well, I do a lot of therapy. Mm -hmm. I love that. <laughs> First of all, I definitely do a lot of therapy. Um, for people that know my story a bit, you know that I don't just work with a regular therapist. I work with a sex therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, and she really helps me through like navigating a lot of sexual health things that kind of come up and helping me work. I'm a very anxious person. I have almost like every diagnosable anxiety disorder you can have. I have it. It's lovely. Um, so I'm constantly working on, you know, being okay with not always being okay. Sitting with discomfort is something I practice a lot with meditation. Um, so I definitely, I love meditation, which is why I love your membership. So I'm not often in the classes just because my schedule is very chaotic, but I love going in after and like doing the meditations. Um, I find that really, really helpful. Um, what else am I doing in my personal life? Well, I do. Okay. So now that I'm in remission, I'm back at the gym, mm -hmm. which I love because I love working out. I love lifting weights. Um, I'm also trying to, um, and this might seem funny, but I'm trying to slow down more, mm -hmm. um, like in, intentionally slowing down. So this often only looks like really a few minutes of my day where I'm going to act like it might just be like when I'm washing dishes, which I know is a common thing in like meditation. They talk about like feeling the water, hearing the water, like all of that. Like I try to just like 
take moments of my life where I slow down. I try to slow down when I eat because I love food and I'm such a foodie and I tend to just like shove it in my face. Same. Yeah. And so I'm trying to actively work, even just if it's like a few bites where I'm actually like slowing down and chewing my food and really tasting and like being in the moment. So I guess I'm, I'm trying to work on being more present and again, actively kind of slowing down certain aspects of my life. I'm also kind of in this like weird, I guess, transformative place with my sexual health. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I also struggle with like libido issues and stuff like that as well. So this is something that I'm starting to, to slowly address, um, to work on like the kind of mental pieces behind libido, mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of mental pieces behind libido. So this is probably like my new journey. I don't know how long this journey will be for, but I'm trying to kind of relearn myself or maybe even recreate myself as a sexual being and trying to become more empowered in my sexuality and kind of work through a lot of that. So I do some work there with like my therapist. I read a lot of books about this. And then um, LSSN also just launched the Get Your Sexy Back program. Um, which focuses, it's a 20 week program with an incredible sex educator who, you know, specifically designed the course for people with lichen sclerosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so going to be going through that as well, which I think will be really, really helpful, yeah, and con- especially amazing. in conjunction with everything else that I'm doing. Yeah. And this educator specifically that. does like sex education work for people with chronic illness. So mm-hmm. it's a little different than like what you would traditionally get in a kind of sex mm-hmm. education space. Definitely. And like, libido is a really big thing that we're going to kind of like be working on there. So I'm very uh, excited to do that. So yeah. That's great. Yeah. And then for fun, I watch a lot of anime and that's all I love doing is watching anime. Yeah. I love that. That's great. Thank you for sharing that, Jacqueline. I love that you're working so much on yourself and that's really an inspiration to many of us as well. Just working, always improving on where we want to go in life, where we want to head in Mm -hmm. life. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. So final questions here. How can people support you and the Lost Labia Chronicles? Follow, follow, follow and share my stuff. Subscribe, share, email. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So follow me. I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook, TikTok and Instagram at the Lost Labia Chronicles for all of those handles. Very easy. I mean, no one else really has that handle. It's it's kind of unique, right? The Lost Labia Chronicles. Yeah, and it's not I know. Exactly and I'm like also a... very impressed that you get to use that handle, to be honest, with the labia in there. I know. I know. <laughs> so, like, I'm knock on wood now. One, two, three. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that is my handle. So, definitely follow me there. Like my stuff. Bookmark my stuff. Share my stuff. Because the more you show the algorithm that my content matters the more the algorithm is going to show this to more Mm -hmm. people the more people that see my content the more people are going to learn about lichen sclerosis you never know who you can help in in that respect um you can uh how else oh obviously yeah so i said share i'm also on twitter i forget my twitter handle is jacqueline j-a-c-l-y-n-t-l-l-c it's the only one so if you want to follow me on Twitter, I recently just started that too. And you can Yay, always read my stuff. Yeah. Um, a big thing that really helps me too is when you tell your doctors about me. Um, a lot of people go in and, you know, they'll be like, oh, there's this person, the Lost Labia Chronicle. She does a lot of evidence-based information and support work. She has a free ebook. So, you know, 
let them know who I am, let them know where to find me, write down my website, send them my ebook, like just the more people you tell about me, you know, the, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, so that definitely helps. Um, I do offer one-on-one support calls for people. Mm-hmm. Um, I offer a free 15 minute consultation for you to basically just, it's kind of just for us to get to know each other and to yeah. see if like the yeah. fit would be good because, you know, I can know all the information in the world, but if my personally doesn't personality doesn't work with you, then we're just not a good fit and that's yeah. okay. So I like to kind of just establish that kind of trust and that connection up front first and then, you know, go from there. After that, I do 30, 60 minute calls and I also offer bundle packages for that. Um, so you can do that. Also follow Lichen Sclerosis Support Network because I'm a content creator for them. Mm-hmm. So if you want to keep seeing my work and help me out, you can also um, follow them. Definitely follow their YouTube channel. That's where all my latest YouTube videos are going to be. So the Lost Labia Chronicles still has a YouTube channel, but that's my old content. So 2023 and onward is going to be over at LSSN's, um, you know, their YouTube page. Depending on when this podcast goes out, we are having the Holistic Healing Summit coming up. Oh, I'm so um, excited. It's going to be great. Uh, me too. Um, I'm doing a couple of talks for that one. I have a booth. So like, come, come to my talks, come check me out, engage, ask questions. I, I love all of that. So yeah, those are all some ways that you can help support me. Yay. That's great, Jacqueline. Yeah, I'm going to put everything in the show notes as well. So people can come and find you. They can find yeah. the ebook. They can bring the ebook to their doctor. So this is great. I'm so excited. And thank you. thank you so much for everything that you shared with us today. It's been absolutely amazing. So much information. I'm just like, been taking so many notes. <laughs> and I bet that the listeners have too. So this is great. Thank you so much for taking this time with us. And we are so grateful to have you. Uh, my absolute pleasure, Penny. I, I love doing this with you. Thank you so much. 